Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Robert Alexander, and he is the author of the new book from Oxford University Press, Representation and the Electoral College. The Electoral College right now is on the top of everybody's mind as we enter the 2020 um, presidential election season. And I'm going to have Robert talk to us a bit about what he understands in terms of the Electoral College, electors, and this question of representation within this strange and oddly constructed thing that the Constitution presented us with in 1787. Hello, Robert, and welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Lily. It's great that you're on today, and I'd like to first ask you a little bit about how you came to this project and to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm Robert Alexander. I've been a professor at Ohio Northern University since 2002. I did my graduate uh, work at uh, the University of Tennessee. And in fact, I actually got turned on to the Electoral College uh, back in graduate school. It was prior to the 2000 election. So uh, as you can see, um, I've been following the Electoral College for quite a while. Interestingly, we spent very little time in graduate school, and I assume in a lot of graduate programs even today, examining the Electoral College. So uh, the the project that we we started um, was with a professor who approached me and said, you know, we, we don't know anything about presidential electors, and uh, it would be a really interesting little footnote in a lot of American government textbooks. Uh, well, uh, we started kind of doing a little bit of research trying to find who these individuals were, these mysterious figures. Um, this was probably in 1998, 1999, and uh, we, we didn't turn up very much. Well, that professor actually left uh, Tennessee at the time, and uh, the project died. Uh, when I arrived at uh, Ohio Northern, um, I was working with my political science honor students and trying to think of a, a project that would um, draw uh, attention and interest of the students from uh, across different uh, uh, areas and uh, decided to pick that project up again. And instead of kind of looking through newspaper clippings, which is what we were doing before, I decided to survey them. Um, I, my, my first area of research was on interest groups at the state level, and I did a lot of surveys of interest groups. So that made some sense to me, just survey who these electors are and try and find out a little bit more about them, kind of the demographics and a little bit of their background. I worked through uh, Pi Sigma Alpha, the Political Science Honor Society, got a chapter activity grant, uh, can put those to good use. And, uh, and we, we were able to survey electors um, of the 2000 Electoral College. And, and I'll just kind of take a step back from that. Um, we uh, uh, did this in 2002, 2003, so it was a little bit of time had passed, but we still were just trying to simply figure out who those, who those people were. Uh, we found some fascinating results uh, from that first survey. Uh, a lot of electors, we had a, a, a crazy response rate, uh, over 60-some percent. Wow. Yeah, it was it was incredible. Uh, these, uh, these individuals really did want to talk and tell their story. 
Uh, many of them wrote handwritten notes. I got phone calls from them. It was <laughs> talking about you know how hard it is to get surveys back. It, this was it was almost uh, hard to keep up with the responses from the surveys. Um, I had electors call me. We we ended up doing a lot of things as a result of that. Uh, uh, one of them was a, a nice little piece in PS that uh, I wrote with a couple of students at the time. That evolved actually into a, a book, um, uh, Presidential Electors in Electoral College, that I published with Cambria Press. Uh, and I was talking to a colleague. I was actually at uh, uh, the Republican National Convention in, in 2016. And I was telling him a little bit about some of the results we'd gotten from surveys in, in the past. And he was dumbfounded. He was like, you're telling me that electors who are uh, who actually don't uh, uh, meet until about a month after you and I vote uh, are lobbied to change their votes. You're telling me that electors uh, actually think about not voting the way they're supposed to, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's what they're telling me. And he says, why does why doesn't everybody know that? And I said, good question. <laughs> he said, you need to think about maybe thinking about the electoral college maybe more broadly. Uh, not just about electors. And so uh, in an aha moment, it was like, yeah, it's about representation. It's about representation in the Electoral College. So uh, that's that's how the book was born. And and so you you talk about this, and obviously the, the title of the book is Representation in, in the Electoral College. And, and the college itself, as we know, those of us who have studied like the founding, mm-hmm. um, was this kind of result of a lot of different ideas on how to select the president or the chief magistrate, as they called it at the time. Can you talk a little bit about how we got the Electoral College? And you talk about it in the book, um, how this was the result of a lot of different perspectives on how to select the president. That's a really good way to put it. Uh, sometimes we we kind of uh, deify the framers and we think about them from this kind of normative perspective and we talk about the framers and and I, th- I find that that's a little bit um, uh, a little too much. Uh, the, the framers didn't always speak with one voice uh, as we know between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. We know that the, the, the framers were all over the place on a number of issues and the Electoral College was one of those issues that truly confounded them and trying to figure out how do we choose this leader across the country. When they went to Philadelphia, they actually had three different modes that they were considering. Uh, and, and this is of interest because the Electoral College is kind of born of all three of these. It's, it's a bit of a Frankenstein's monster um, of, uh, of these different perspectives on representation. Uh, one of them was uh, the, the Congress would select the, 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 the president. Uh, another was the direct election. Uh, one of the things that's, of course, a hot topic today, uh, that the people would, would, would actually choose who the president would be. The other one was that they'd be chosen by state legislatures. Um, the concern there might be that there would be too much regionalism. Uh, the concern with being selected by, by Congress would be separation of powers. Uh, so th- this was one of the issues that really vexed them quite a bit. Um, many of the arguments that we hear today were front and center uh, during the convention. Uh, throughout much, much of the convention, uh, selection by Congress seemed to be the odds-on favorite. Uh, as they kind of considered a little bit more, they, they realized that separation of powers issue. 
a considered direct election. Uh, there was direct election in several of the states at the time. Not, maybe not surprisingly, the uh, most populated states, Massachusetts and New York. Um, New Hampshire also had it. Uh, George Mason rose against that and he said, you know, giving the, the, the vote of the, of the president to the people would be like uh, referring a trial of colors to a blind man, uh, saying that maybe people wouldn't have enough information to make a good, good decision. Of course, if we use that logic today, uh, if we were able to, to give that blind man sight, then it would be okay to, uh, to allow uh, for direct election. Um, much of the debate really wasn't about citizens' right to vote for the president. It, it was much of it was about their ability um, to, to do so. Um, so they, they thought that, you know, if it was direct election, populated states would be advantaged. There was this balancing act that they were really trying to achieve between you know, slave states, non-slave states, populated states, less populated states, north, south. And, and so they were really trying to figure that out. And so a lot of pragmatism worked to, to try and prevail. And much of it came about at the same time that the Connecticut Compromise came about. It kind of gave them an out uh, to, to kind of figure out, oh, OK, so we'll we'll use the representation based upon statehood uh, via the Senate. But we'll also use representation based upon uh, population as seen in the, in the House of Representatives. Um, and even then, uh, you, they considered that these electors uh, who would have the most information and again would be chosen uh, at the state level which could mean that it could be direct election. It could mean that the state legislatures could simply appoint who these electors were. That was still unclear at the time. But these electors would be the ones making these decisions. And, and, and frankly, one of the arguments that they made was that uh, most of the time, nobody would command a majority of electoral votes and that the House of Representatives would ultimately probably make that decision. So uh, they really did... Um, wrestle with this issue. And it's not surprising that it's actually uh, seen as probably one of the most controversial um, pieces of the Constitution. There's nearly 800 proposals to amend the Electoral College or change it in some way. And that doesn't take into account all of the efforts that have been made at the state level. So uh, just as they wrestled with the issue and, uh, you know, we continue to wrestle with it today. And, and you note that Hamilton talks about this as really one of the best parts um, of the Constitution in his argument in Federalist 68. And yet, and yet, um, perhaps not. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm probably a little, I think you probably noted my sarcasm coming off the page, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> it, he says something to the effect of if it's at least not uh, perfect, then it's at least excellent. And and certainly most people today would, would, would take some exception with that. Yeah, and he doesn't, I mean, among the Federalist Papers, he spends very little time talking about it in terms of the president. Um, and he sort of leaves it more or less uncommented on. Um, and and it is, as you note, kind of this weird Frankenstein monster outcome trying to balance all of these different pieces um, of understanding how the new system would work. Um, and so in, in the book, you talk about the fact that there are these questions of federalism. There's questions of representation. There's questions of sort of democratic um, engagement. And 
and the book itself is a, is focusing really on this question of representation. So can you talk a little bit about the role of representation with regard to the Electoral College, particularly over the course of its um, lifetime in the last 200 plus years? Sure. This is, uh, you know, one of the, the best things about being a professor is the fact that you never stop learning, right? And I had not uh, taken a look too much at, at Hannah Pitkin uh, for, for, for a few years. It was good to refresh my mind about Pitkin and what she had said about representation. And so trying to, to, to think about what the, what the founders were thinking, you know, what they were trying to accomplish and trying to measure that up to what we consider as uh, good representation. What do we try and achieve with representation? And so I did. I, I, I kind of went back to Edmund Burke. I went back to Hannah Pitkin and trying to examine what is it that, that occurs when we're thinking about representation. And, and with Pitkin, you know, one of the things that was uh, very um, telling to me was how complicated, of course, representation is. This is one of the reasons why the Electoral College itself is such a thorny issue for uh, many Americans. Are, are we trying to represent states? What is a state? Uh, what does that state, uh, what would that interest actually be? Uh, George Edwards does a good job of kind of pointing out some of these problems when we're thinking about, uh, you know, is the representation, so we say the Electoral College helps represent uh, less populated states. Well, what is it that Wyoming and Vermont necessarily have in common? Uh, we look at California. California's a top 10 uh, GDP by itself across the, across the world, uh, a huge agricultural producer. Uh, we have Republican governors in California. So trying to consider whether or not, um, you know, the Electoral College is representing states is, is kind of tricky. If we're thinking about what we want to accomplish with, you know, the presidency, do we want a national leader? Or do we want a federal leader? And and I, I point out in the book that uh, the, the framers clearly pointed out that they they wanted more of a that federalism was was more important to them uh, at that time. Um, and and there's some some reasons uh, for that, but that that's just one choice. Uh, as many uh, scholars of electoral politics point out, different rules yield different outcomes. And the Electoral College is, is simply one set of rules or actually multiple sets of rules across the country, which also makes it much more complicated for people to understand uh, in, in, in achieving a, a particular outcome. And, uh, and, and, and that complication um, makes it very difficult for people to, to comprehend. So, for example, when we have a leader who is selected uh, uh, as our president who doesn't win the most votes from across the country. And again, that comes back to different rules and those rules were put in place by political parties. And, and that signified a major change uh, in how the Electoral College operated uh, from its outset to, to what I refer to as the evolved Electoral College. And that really speaks again to representation issues. And, and so I'd like to pick up on that in terms of the role of parties and the evolved and or the evolving and ultimately evolved electoral college that the the role the advent of parties early on and and their role with regard to the electoral college shifted 
and changed it in, in a variety of ways. Can you um, explain some of how that happened and also how we are dealing with it now? So again, thinking about representation, we can think about it geographically, we can think about it ideologically. And much of today we consider it ideological. Uh, Republicans stand for a certain set of principles. Democrats stand for a certain set of principles. Third parties have their, their different sets of principles. Uh, the, the early going of the Electoral College did not take into account political parties. It, it was, as I said, more kind of geographic uh, uh, centered. Uh, but of course, very, very quickly, political parties, you know, the, the mischiefs of faction, uh, they did take hold. And uh, as, as political parties, as, as groups started to organize and mobilize and start to run tickets, which again, they didn't foresee, uh, this really changed how the Electoral College operated because people were voting for, for parties. Uh, and, and they were voting for electors who were basically uh, being um, loyal to these, to these political parties. And uh, that changed things significantly uh, to the point where we had a, a tie in uh, the 1800 election between uh, Jefferson and uh, Burr, uh, president and vice president, because the, the, the Constitution made no um, distinction between how the electoral votes were to be divided. And uh, essentially, the, the, the first two top vote getters would be president and then vice president. Well, because they ran as a, as a party ticket, uh, they tied. Uh, it then went to the House Contingency Procedure, which is a whole other bag of tricks. Uh, yeah, I want to get there. <laughs> yeah, when we consider the, uh, the the rules of the Electoral College uh, and representation. And, uh, and, and they deadlocked uh, multiple times, over two dozen times, before they, they ultimately chose uh, Jefferson over Burr. Um, and some would even say that, you know, Hamilton weighed in on it. And uh, this was uh, perhaps uh, part of uh, Hamilton and Burr's... Um, uh, ultimate demise for, for certainly poor Alexander. But um, so, yeah, the, 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 the reliance on political parties and ideology uh, more so than necessarily statehood. Uh, and that kind of has its play today, right? Is that most people do see themselves uh, through, through party centered eyes rather than necessarily their state's eyes. So, you know, it's kind of, and that speaks to the nationalization of our elections. And, uh, and so while we retain these features of a kind of a federal um, process, it's, it's truly become nationalized as far as how we think about um, presidential elections, but yet how presidential elections actually operate is very different than, than that. And, and one of the arguments that the founders made, the one that, that really makes a lot of sense to me for the time was they created this in in part also because they didn't anticipate that people in other states would know much about candidates that were far away from them mm-hmm. um and and that it was really going to be difficult to get a nationally known candidate beyond say George Washington mm-hmm. um and that the concern was that you would have um, everybody always voting for their state's favorite son. Um, and that was going to be a problem. And as you said, that the anticipation was nobody was going to get a majority in the Electoral College. That was the anticipation. And that oftentimes it would go to the House to decide. 
Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the Electoral College? So if if you're not a fan of um, the power of less populated states over more populated states, then the House contingency procedure will really um, set you you off. Because uh, as that works, each state's delegation gets one vote, um, regardless of the size of the state. And, uh, and they vote until there's a majority winner. Um, this has happened uh, in the past. Um, and it even happened, um, well, I, I'll get back to that later, perhaps, uh, in uh, the vice presidential uh, election where uh, uh, electors actually um, uh, held back their votes on a vice presidential candidate. And it ended up, I think, going to the Senate rather than, than the House. But again, the, the same principle um, Um, prevails where states have a great uh, amount of power in these contingency elections uh, rather than the the, the popular vote. And and so can you tell us a little bit about that vice presidential controversy? Well, yeah, I think it was 1836. There was a a, a vice presidential candidate, um, I think from Virginia. And uh, essentially, um, the electors from his home state, I, I believe, uh, withheld their votes for him uh, in, in protest of his uh, taking up with um, uh, an African-American. And, uh, and so they denied him uh, a majority of electoral votes for vice president. And uh, so when people say that it had to go, I think, to the Senate uh, in that case, um, and it was the first time that that, that had been used uh, in the Senate. And uh, this is, uh, you know, speaks to that point. Well, electors, faithless electors could never make a difference. Well, they actually have uh, made a difference uh, in a vice presidential campaign. He ultimately was selected, but he was denied um, in the Electoral College. And and so you do spend a bit of time discussing early on in, in the introduction also the idea of the faithless elector. And obviously this was earlier research that you had done. Um, but this also goes to the, the sort of strange structure of the Electoral College itself, mm-hmm. that there's nothing that binds electors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what is the reasoning there in terms of the role of these human beings, obviously, um, in casting their vote about a month after the election mm-hmm. um, and what states have tried to do, or maybe not, mm-hmm. with regard to this potential um, sort of different outcome? Well, so faithless electors is a bit of a oxymoron is you pointed out um hamilton spends very little time talking about the electoral college and one of the things that he does talk about is electors and uh electors are supposed to be these men and and women of discernment uh who would cast their votes on the basis of principle on on the basis of good judgment um you know they would be um perhaps elite in society uh, particularly in that time period when, you know, maybe n- not all Americans would know uh, these candidates from across the country, but electors would. Uh, he also points out in uh, Federal 68 how electors uh, would be able to guard us against uh, cabal and intrigue. They'd be, help guard us against, are you ready for this? Foreign interference in our I presidential know. elections, <laughs> <laughs> and and so uh, and that actually you know well, I'm sure we'll get to that as well, but uh, in, in 2016, but uh, electors were supposed to be these people. Now 
again, with the with the advent of political parties, with the advent of winner take all, that's another kind of rule that states have, have put into into um, in, in, into operation. Uh, and uh, what that does, of course, is uh, electors are chosen much more so for their loyalty rather than their judgment. And uh, and so today, and that speaks to that evolved nature of it. Today, if an elector votes for someone other than who, who we anticipate them voting for, we consider them to be faithless. Uh, if you're a true constitutionalist, you would say, no, they're being faithful to you know Hamilton's original intent. But uh, today they, they're kind of the subject of scorn um, or they're the subject of, 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 of quite a bit of uh, lobbying to, to, to um, maybe hold up uh, higher principles than, than partisanship. And, and we've seen that in several elections. So they're very rare. Uh, generally speaking, uh, electors, it's kind of a symbolic position. You're chosen for your party loyalty. You're chosen for working hard for the party. You're chosen maybe for your campaign contributions. Uh, not again for, you know, your ability to sit down and really mull over your decision. Uh, but uh, faithless electors have occurred. Uh, they've occurred in many of the elections uh, throughout the, the 20th century. Um and uh, in states, there's no constitutional um, mandate that electors vote as, as anticipated. Many states have put laws into effect. A majority of states have put laws into effect to try and bind electors to the popular vote in their states. Uh, that has been uh, confirmed or affirmed by uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. But as you know, right now, we're literally in the midst of a challenge uh, as to whether or not uh, once, once a vote is cast, if if uh, if if a, if a state can change that vote from an elector, um, so kind of speaking back to that independence argument, uh, you know, electors were besieged in in 2016 to to be faithless. Um, so they do it, it does happen. It's not expected to happen. That's a consequence of that evolved electoral college, and it also speaks to an issue of representation. Uh, you know, whether or not, you know, do we put these people in these positions to um, act on our behalf or to act on our behalf uh, simply as the voter, as a, as, a, as a delegate of what we've asked them to do? Or do we trust them to, if they see something maybe uh, awry, that maybe they should vote how they wish as opposed to necessarily how voters wish? And this is the Burkean challenge in terms of understanding these people. These these electors who have you know showed up every four years, whoever they may be, mm-hmm. um, and you know and chosen to do what the state did, or on on rare occasions, as you note, sort of take a different approach mm-hmm. um, and a different representation that they are representing a different dynamic um, or will of the people in a different way. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, Chapter 7, Alexander Hamilton and the 2016 election. Um, can you dive into some of your thinking with regard to the 2016 election? Um, as you know, it had the highest number of deviating electors. Mm-hmm. We shall not and, um, and, you know, sort of what you also, you know, the next chapter in the book is sort of the thoughts on reform um, and, and where we go from here. Mm-hmm. 
So when I, all those years ago, when I, when I started thinking about the electoral college in particular electors, I really had no thought one way or, or another on the electoral college is kind of an afterthought. And I think I kind of point out like electors themselves are often seen as like vestigial organs. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're there, but we don't really recognize that they're there. Uh, until something goes wrong, like right. the appendix bursts, and then we say, "Whoa, what's going on here?" Um, so uh, when we when so when I started doing this, it, that very first uh, survey of electors um, was of those two thousand electors, and um, you know I didn't ask a question whether or not they'd been lobbied. I didn't ask a question whether they considered not voting for you know George W. Bush or Al Gore. I I just simply went demographics. I did ask a question. Uh, as to whether or not they believe that you know, Bush was elected legitimately. Uh, this was, again, a, kind of one of those, quote unquote, misfire elections where the popular vote winner did not win the Electoral College vote. And so I just asked that question to kind of compare that, you know, what electors thought compared to what the citizenry thought. And what I found was that they were actually, well, I believe this, 99% of Republicans said, yes, Bush was elected legitimately. But I was really interested in, well, who is this 1%? And what that actually turned out to be was there were two Republican electors that said no, and there were two more that said that they were unsure. Two of those four electors were from Florida. And so I'm looking at that and I'm going, wait, George W. Bush had 271 electoral votes. If two of these individuals who clearly were uneasy about uh, the process, um, the election, maybe George W. Bush, I, we don't know. Uh, clearly cast their ballot with some uneasiness. And so I, I started thinking, wow, this, that's kind of crazy. And I also had electors, as I put it out, reach out to me. Uh, some said that they would never serve again because they received death threats, uh, that uh, they received thousands of phone calls. Um, so I thought, that's interesting. And I hadn't really seen anything on this. In fact, uh, when I started doing research on electors, um, basically found a paragraph on, on who electors might be. And, and, and so clearly there's a lot to, to, to look at there. So over time, I, I started asking the question, did you give any consideration to, to deviating, as you, as you point out, uh, in, in the election? Did, did anybody contact you in an effort to change your vote? And I started asking that with the 2004 election. And I found that, uh, to my surprise, a lot of electors are contacted. Uh, that takes a lot of activity and energy. Uh, to, to find out who these electors are and to reach out to them and, and actually try and uh, uh, change their vote in some way. But also that a number of electors did consider defecting. And so I started really trying to examine who those people might be and why they might be like that. And uh, that became very useful as I started examining the 2016 election. Uh, in fact, uh, in my 2012 book on electors, I, I, I have a, a little piece there where I point out that, you know, if you have a particularly toxic candidate, uh, you might find a, a number of electors who would be um, who would truly consider defecting. And, uh, and, and the reality is in 2016, we had two of the most unpopular presidential candidates in, in polling history. Uh, in fact, we had uh, one elector from Washington who said that uh, he wasn't going to vote for Hillary Clinton and he hoped that it cost her the election. And he said that before uh, the election when, when we thought Hillary Clinton was, was going to win. So uh, when Trump wins that night, 
literally that night, I get an email uh, from an editor who says, uh, I need an opinion piece. I, I know that you're the guy on, <laughs> on electric <laughs> and uh, I need an opinion piece because he knew I'd, I'd kind of written about this, this concern about, uh, about electors and you know that they could go faithless and then they get lobbied and so I, I put a piece out there and and to my I don't I think to my children's chagrin uh, the article actually trended on Apple News and they're like dad's kind of cool um, so that, <laughs> that was kind of neat but uh, uh, the the larger issue was uh, that the, those Hamilton electors they called themselves the Hamilton electors drawing from Federalist sixty eight they were mostly Democrats uh, there was one Republican who wrote a uh, an op-ed in the New York Times. Several Republicans prior to the election, I should point out, several Republicans prior to the election electors uh, stepped down. They said, I can't vote for Donald Trump. I won't vote for Donald Trump. I know that the people have put me in this position to vote for him, and I simply can't do it. So there seemed to be a bit of an appetite. Uh, and again, let's just kind of peel back for a second. Uh, at that time, um, you know, uh, the point was Hillary Clinton seemed to be up in the popular vote by several million votes. Donald Trump kind of a, uh, a very controversial candidate. Uh, and a lot of Republicans were very uneasy with whether or not, uh, you know, who, who Donald Trump actually actually was. You go back a couple months into the election or prior to the election to the Access Hollywood tape, you had Republicans that wouldn't endorse him. You had Republicans saying, you know, we should change the ticket. I mean, it was a real issue. So these electors then were faced with with quite a bit of um, um, agitation uh, from from people in, in the real world. Uh, so there was a change uh, petition that was circulated. Lady Gaga signs on to it. Uh, Pink Saturday Night Live is talking about you know will the electors save us? Uh, it was quite a quite a circus, and in fact. Um, it's it's rare that you know in political science and and, and I, I believe we should be able to do this, um, but it's rare like when your research actually meets reality. And one day I, I came into the office and I, I get an email from the Hamilton electors asking you know for for help, and I'm going no, I'm just an objective uh, social scientist here, uh, you know, and and so that was that was also um, very interesting. Um, they were every single Republican was contacted. Every single Republican elector uh, was was you know, pe people tried to persuade them to change their vote. Um, what I found was, and they were contacted both from people out in the public, but they were also contacted from fellow electors. And uh, and there was a a real push, a kind of a quiet push, in addition to that public push. Uh, the Trump campaign came out and they, they reached out to electors to say, you know, we can we can trust you. Right. We can trust you. Um, that's not unlike Ronald Reagan, uh, I think, in, in 1984, I think, or maybe it was 1980. Uh, he sent a letter to all of his Republican electors saying there's no surprises. Right. I mean, parties and candidates, they worry about the potential for faithless electors. And if they're worried about it, then I would say that maybe we should be, too. What we found is that about 20% of Republican electors gave some consideration to not voting for Donald Trump. In 2016. In 2016. And that's that, a lot. That's a lot. So if you, know, if you kind of take that out there, that, that's potentially 60-some electors, right? I mean, literally, I had 20-some electors that responded to the survey saying that they considered uh, not voting for, for Trump. 
Um, they, they needed just under 40 to actually throw it into the House of Representatives, which, you know, at that point, it, Trump probably still would have won. But, you know, if there were that kind of a um, revolt among electors, uh, who knows what, what could have happened? Some of these electors, uh, they signed on to a petition to um, be briefed on uh, Russian interference. And, you know, in December of, 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 of 2016, you know, Robert Mueller, nobody knew who Robert Mueller was. He wasn't a thing at that point. People weren't really spending that much time talking about Russian interference. Uh, these electors asked to be briefed on it before they voted. Most of them, again, were Democrats. Uh, there were several Republicans that also signed on to it, but uh, they were denied that briefing, which speaks directly against that belief in Federalist 68 that electors should have you know, information at their fingertips to make good decisions. Uh, simply, this was saying, your party lackeys do what the party's telling you to do. Uh, so that, you know, it's not a binding piece of legislation, but it's essentially saying that that kind of vision that Hamilton put forward isn't isn't real today. Um, still, a number of electors, I think 10 electors, tried to defect. Uh, uh, one of them, uh, who was in Maine, um, they were asked to re-vote. And, uh, and he gave me a nice explanation in his, in his survey about why he then, you know, he initially voted for Bernie Sanders. And then he realized that uh, he would be putting others in his electoral college delegation in some uncomfortable positions. So he, when he was asked to re-vote, he did vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, there was an elector in Minnesota who also sought to vote for Bernie Sanders. Uh, he was removed. And it was the first time that the, the, the law in Minnesota that says that, you know, if you cast an electoral vote, you're replaced, was put into effect. That law went into place uh, as a result of, an, of a faithless elector in 2004. Uh, most of the time, those laws that seek to punish or, uh, a, a faithless elector go into existence after a faithless elector has occurred. So, um, you know, the, the, that binding legislation uh, is a result of, of an action uh, to which some might say, well, that's, that's too late. Um, so... That. And the binding legislation is is up to the states. There is no national move. There, it's it's the determination by each state how they're going to select their electors, bind them, um, punish them. All of that is up state by state. Correct? Absolutely. States have that authority to do so. And and the reality is is that you know there have been these huge changes that have occurred to the electoral college from the original electoral college are almost all at the state level. You know, uh, the winner take all changes the dynamics of the electoral college tremendously. And that's up to the states. Uh, electoral, you know, uh, whether or not to, how we choose our electors, up to the states. So the states have quite a bit of power, which is a nice segue to that national popular vote plan, right? Because um, that's what, where they're trying to, you know, alter the electoral college from what we know today to, to confirm or to, to produce or to yield a national popular vote winner, but only doing that uh, through laws at the state um, level rather than through a constitutional amendment. And so the national popular vote compact as it's sort of making its way through state houses has mostly been supported by states that are these days um, democratic majorities or, or 
or their electoral college votes go to Democratic candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as somebody who studies the electoral college and also attempts to change it, either to amend the Constitution or to do other things, um, how likely do you think that this movement will be to actually shift the way the electoral college functions and works? It, it, it you know, the if you're a betting person, you probably wouldn't bet on it uh, to, to, to make that change. Um, and even if it were to be successful and get the 270 votes across the, the country to, 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 to make that change, there would be a flurry of constitutional challenges to it, I, I believe. Um, and, you know, one of the points that I make in the book is, you know, one of the key parts of any re- Republican representative government is is the issue of legitimacy and uh, if it if if this process is seen as a workaround the constitution i think that there's real concerns with legitimacy to that with all of that said they've actually made great progress since 2016 in uh in getting states on board with this national popular vote plan um i sent the book to to the to the uh copy editor like in january well by may when the book came out four new states had had signed on to it uh two other states uh had uh had come very close to to signing on to it so quite a bit of locomotion uh has occurred and what's really fascinating is colorado's adoption of it uh, as a kind of a purplish state it's one of the first purple states to adopt the npv plan which you know, would, would seem to disadvantage those states that are indeed battleground states and are in play. And and so in terms of um, moving forward, as you know, there's been uh, about 800 different proposals. And this is, students ask me this all the time, like, why do we still have this? <laughs> and I always say, well, you have to amend the constitution to get rid of it. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a voice with regard to the small and medium sized states that numerically makes it unlikely to change. Mm-hmm. That seems to continue to be the case. Is that what your research would also indicate? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we came very close actually to, um, to, uh, jettisoning the electoral college in the, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And that was a period, you know, it's not like amendments don't happen. It's not like change doesn't occur. I mean, you know, to, to consider that uh, the District of Columbia was able to uh, gain um, electoral college votes, certainly um, in, in relatively recent time period, is, is kind of surprising given how polarizing things seem to be today. Um, but, you know, the, the, the opportunity to, to, to amend the Constitution um is uh, it's very difficult. It's steep. It's hard. Uh, those states that feel advantaged by the electoral college, particularly those less populated states, have, have traditionally stood in the way of of, of that type of change. Um, which is why the the national popular vote uh, proposal has has gained some momentum. Um, I actually, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do right now is to put some public pieces out there to get people thinking about these issues and. Uh, I've got a piece that that should be um, uh, arriving pretty soon, you know, essentially saying that, you know, because right now the Electoral College is such a partisan issue and it's not always been such a partisan issue. Traditionally, uh, public opinion polling on it has has been pretty negative that most Americans would like to see just a simple national popular vote. So that's kind of 
intriguing, right? That it's been so hard to, to actually get there. Um, and in fact, uh, in, in the late 60s, it was like 80% of Americans wanted to get rid of it and, and, and have an amendment and, and change it. Richard Nixon was even on board with a Republican um, and, and, and it didn't get out of committee. So um, I think in the Senate. And, and so that became a, a, a problem there. But one of these things that I'm, I'm trying to get people to think about, right? So like right now, if Texas, Texas suddenly has become a little bit more um, amenable to, to Democrats. If Texas were to be put in play by Democrats, uh, Democrats may come to love the Electoral College, uh, <laughs> where Republicans may come to say, whoa, this is a problem because it can become much more difficult for them to get the, the, the numbers that they would need to get to 270. You could start getting rid of or not worrying about states like Wisconsin, like Ohio, like uh, uh, Michigan, and just focus on your Illinois and your New York and your Texas and your Californias um, and your other reliably strong um, Democrat states. So if that were to happen, you might see a little bit more movement among Republicans to say, wait a second, um, we're getting locked out of the Electoral College by these more populated states. One of the things I like to point out, it's not like Republicans can't win national elections. They haven't fared very well uh, over the last six or seven elections. Uh, I mean, they've, they've, they've lost the popular vote in most of those, even though they've won the Electoral College in two of those um, uh, contests. But, you know, in 2004, George W. Bush had three million more votes than John Kerry across the country. You know, he did very well across the country. Uh, but had uh, a fraction of voters in Ohio changed their minds and voted for, for Kerry, uh, he would have won the Electoral College with 271 Electoral College votes uh, while losing the popular vote by 3 million. And if that had happened, this is a big counterfactual, of course, but had that had happened, we'd have seen probably uh, a change to the Constitution. I, I, I believe that um, Democrats and Republicans both would have been burned by it and would have said, okay, let's just do something that's a little bit simpler than this electoral college procedure. So as you say, you're, you're working on some popular pieces to get people thinking about the process itself and what the electoral college does and how it functions and who it represents or doesn't represent mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, what other projects are you working on now? Well, so yeah, I'm, I'm doing some opinion pieces on those, but I'm also, uh, uh, of course, refreshing um, the, the last book on presidential electors. And so I'll, I'll be doing a second edition of uh, presidential electors in electoral college, um, bringing to bear uh, more of the data that we, we, we collected um, since that book came out. So kind of adding in the 2012 and 2016 electoral colleges and, and trying to make some more sense of how electors and why electors you know, they actually like their freedom. They, they, they actually like the ability to uh, vote as they wish. So while many might want to bind them to, to uh, the vote of their states or of their parties, electors themselves think, you know, no, there's all kinds of reasons why we, why we might want to have that um, um, freedom, that discretion, uh, in, including things like uh, Russian interference. So I'll be uh, examining that again. Um, through a second edition of that book. And that's, of course, very, very exciting to be able to, to be asked to do, uh, you know, more than one edition. So that'll be where my energies are at uh, kind of moving forward. 
And, and um, this excellent book on representation and the Electoral College, where can one pick up a copy of this book? Well, you know, Oxford University Press, uh, that's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, you know, um, as a, <laughs> as a, as a poor, simple country kid uh, from, from Ohio, um, it's, it's really um, humbling uh, to be able to publish with, with Oxford. And I would say to, to head to the OUP website and, um, and pick one up. All right. Thank you very much, Robert Alexander, for joining me this morning to talk about representation and the Electoral College, which was published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. Incredibly timely, a great book and a lovely and a very well written book, too. Thank you so much. It's very humbling to to be asked to do this. I really appreciate it, Lily. My pleasure.